Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Patrick Bacusis. Pat is the sales natural. He's a silver fox, grizzled. He's been around for you know three, four decades in sales. And he and I are working on a project together called The Seller Code, which is to try and bring some professionalism back into the most noble profession there is, which is selling. We're fundamental believers that the customer is the reason we exist in sales and that they've been forgotten and become a sad afterthought in the eyes of many leaders and managers and sellers. And we want to bring back some nobility to the profession. So today we're going to be talking about ethical sales. We're going to be talking about Pat's uh, concept of clean selling. And we're going to look at how you can actually clean up your own act. And it starts with self-awareness. So without any further ado, Pat, welcome. Thank you, Marcus. Pleasure to have you on again. Tell me this. Could you give us a couple of minutes on your history so people understand your background and the work that you're doing currently? Yeah, thank you, Marcus. A pleasure to be here. Well, I guess I've always been in sales. Uh, even as a, as a as a kid, my aspiration was to be a salesperson like my dad. I'm, I'm, I didn't want to drive fire engines or be a policeman or any of those sorts of things. I essentially pursued that career. I I, I wanted to sell machinery. Um, not terribly sure exactly why, but I went through agricultural college and to pursue ag, you know career in agricultural machinery, but didn't quite pan out that way. And I actually ended up in earth moving machinery, catapult equipment. Right, and so I was in that for quite a few years. Became a sales manager. Was very successful as a sales rep. Became a sales manager. Moved on into other organisations, industrial organisations similar similar to to sort of Caterpillar. And then I made a career broad jump and went into IT. I was an early adopter back in the day when I when I was a sales director in 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 the equipment industry, using in those days batch computer systems to build what we now call a CRM, right? And I became pretty interested in the use of technology from those early days. And so I I decided to get into IT. I had a lot of friends working there. And that was an interesting transition. It's a story all of its own. And I worked for companies like Prime Computer. People don't probably remember, but Oracle Systems people will remember, and a few others. And um, I guess most notably, I had a number of company turnarounds uh, that I worked in where there were dysfunctional sales teams that weren't performing terribly well and turned them around to become very successful. In fact, oftentimes world beaters, literally. And then I was approached by other organizations to run workshops for their sales staff. And I said, well, it's not actually what I do. And they said, oh, you know, can you just do it half a day or something anyway. like that? So I, so I I kind of got dragged into it in terms of coaching in other organizations on an ad hoc basis. And it eventually got to the stage where I decided to sort of codify my methods and become a coach. I, I guess the other thing to say is that in the organizations I worked in, I, I always took responsibility for training my salespeople myself. I was ultimately, I saw my role as a coach. Mm-hmm. and put a lot of effort into coaching my sales teams. And frankly, that was why they were successful. And how many of them went on to be good managers and great leaders? Frankly, not as many as I would have liked. Uh, a few did. And I guess I've lost touch with a few, frankly. A reasonable number did. Not not all of them, obviously. But then again, not all of them became sales leaders either. I mean, proportionately, you get a lot more sales reps than you get sales leaders, yeah? <laughs> 
and I think the other thing that was particularly rewarding is I used to like working with younger people like graduates and stuff like that. And uh, that's probably worthy of comment that when I started my career, I had a, I had some really good mentors. Mm-hmm. It made a huge difference to me. Deep impression. I definitely stood on the shoulder of giants, and that's what helped me, got me off to a kickstart in my career. And in fact, it was a bit of a joke in the company I was in where I was considered the best trained non-manager when I went into my first management role. I'd been really thoroughly prepared, and, and I was successful. And I think that's a tragedy in most sales situations. You don't know, Marcus, that we just don't prepare sales leaders, and these guys just go into the role ill-prepared. The normal pathway is getting tapped on the shoulder and told, Pat, we've just fired your idiot boss. Congratulations, you're the idiot boss. Off you go, sir. When your job changes 180 degrees from being an individual contributor to having to get the entire team over the line together, which is now your job as the manager, it's a very different mindset. So you were fortunate in that you had that grounding because you did what was done to you. Most people in management do what was done to them, which is basically you sit down, you have a weekly or fortnightly pipeline review, which is a death march of everyone lying from their work of fiction. Then the manager beating a few people up and raising up on um, uh, onto a pedestal the ones who are doing well. And then people leave that meeting having learned nothing and being emotionally drained. That's yeah. not management. The result is we're now in this situation where sales has reached this point where people like you and I are genuinely concerned about the lack of nobility in the profession. You know, sales should be the most noble act we perform in business bar none because it's the facilitation of making the best decision in the best way for the customer. It's not about coercing them into taking cash. So let's talk about some values, first of all. What are the values that you teach your clients and the uh, the people on your team? Well, just on that, just tracking back to that those early influences where, as I said, I had really good mentors. It so happened that at the time when I was working in the Caterpillar world, Caterpillar released a code of conduct. They were the first company to formally publish a code of conduct. And this was back in the days when there were the Lockheed scandals and scandals of big corporates bribing governments to buy stuff and all the rest of it. And so Caterpillar came out and produced this code of conduct. It was the first company to do so and said, this is the way we're going to conduct ourselves. We're going to abide by the laws. We're going to pay our taxes. We're going to do all these good things. And that had a really, that had quite a profound effect on a young mind. And I had some leaders that were, well, stand-ups morally, were, were great people. And, and that had a huge influence on me. And so I've basically gone through my life thanks to that and 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 that influence. And I guess what where I see the wheels come off is when we lose touch of that. Provided that's in place, you can kind of make anything work, right? With this essential moral code where people feel safe to be vulnerable, people can sort of come along and say, look, hey, I don't know what I'm doing. Can you help me? And they feel safe and supported. It, I mean, it's not it's not rocket science, but that's what it takes. And similarly, when dealing with customers, funny thing. That works in the same environment, right? And I guess the sales seller's role with buyers is very much analogous to that of a coach. Uh, you know, you're a trusted guide. A lovely expression, and I think I've mentioned this to you in the past, but that really struck me, and I don't know who came up with this saying, I've tried to find out, but I can't, is they need to trust you to help them make decisions they don't trust themselves to make. 
I think that really encapsulates what our role is, right? I think we need to understand that people turn to sellers for leadership and a safe pair of hands. If they knew how to solve their problem, they would already have done it. So they're coming to us. And more often than not, they only want to talk to a seller when they're in the active looking phase of the buying journey. But so much of our outreach, our marketing, our sales activity is poorly timed and selfish. It's very self-orientated and it's driven by this short-term thinking of leadership and the quarterly reporting and what we measure. I have a view that most salespeople actually want to do a good job. And most people want to behave ethically. We've all found ourselves in situations where we felt pressure to do otherwise. And then sometimes we've capitulated. Then we pass on the blame without taking any responsibility by saying, well, they made me do it. That's yeah. bollocks. It's yes. a choice. Every time you say, I was only following orders, you chose to lie. You chose yes. to omit. You chose to exaggerate. You chose to try and scalp them because it was convenient for you. And what Pat and I are both talking about today, really, is that what are you going to do when you're faced with that dilemma? How are you going to prepare yourself for these difficult moral decisions where you have to make a choice between your short-term selfish self-interest and the customer's best interest? Yeah, well, I think the tragic thing today is to sort of back up on what you were saying is that the buyers do not approach us. Once upon a time, they did. You know, I was around before the internet, and I remember selling in that. Back in the days when they didn't have this ubiquitous source of information, buyers, when they started, even if the sell seller didn't get to them like they ought to, but if they didn't, mm -hmm. at the early stages, they actually start contacting vendors because they needed some information to find out how to do things, and, and vendors were the source of information, right? With the advent of the internet, of course, that totally switched. The, the power shifted from the seller to the buyer. The power of knowledge went from the seller to the buyer. And all of a sudden, sellers were basically redundant. They didn't need that ubiquitous information source. They needed a deeper source of information in terms of application knowledge and, and whatever. But the sales or salespeople haven't matured to become information curators, like is what they need. Instead of information providers, they need to be information curators now. And that, that didn't happen. And so what they're useful for then is pricing information, basically, or some detailed specs information. And that's why they don't get called in until very late. In I mean, the, the, the message there is it's not terribly subtle is we don't see any value in you. So we don't need to talk to you. Well, um, our, our mutual friend, Tony Hughes, was doing a project with a company selling to pharmacies in Australia. And at the end of year, there were two territories that were about 30% ahead of the rest of the market. And so they went to interview the salespeople on those territories, only to find there were no salespeople. <laughs> but then they went to interview the pharmacists. And they said, well, you know, what value do salespeople bring? Well, nothing. They're really just an interruption. Oh, no, they sometimes give us discounts. Yeah. <laughs> so these salespeople were going out and costing the business money just by running them with, being there. but just by being there, salaries, running costs, expenses, fuel, travel, all that. And, and then they were giving away margin because they didn't know any better.
Yeah. And it's not... If they were conditioned to do that, it's like pharmaceutical reps. You know, to, uh, in this country, pharmaceutical reps are basically uh, given a car and a gold card and told, go off and meet six doctors a day. If you do that, you've done your target. Even if they throw the phone at you to get you out of the office, that counts as a meet. Yes. So I think one of the really big challenges that we've got to face is, are we measuring the right things? Because I think a lot of our behavior is driven by what we measure, how we're compensated. And as a result, we end up getting the wrong outcome. It might work in the short term, but long term, it doesn't build sustainable businesses or lifetime relationships. No. Well, it's ironic. And, you know, as Daniel Pink pointed out in his book, Drive, and from the, you know, as he describes it, extrinsic motivators, it's, it's the most research area in terms of commercial economics or human economics. We're not motivated by that. You know, the, the, in other words, the commission plan is kind of a bad idea, but we don't seem to want to come up with something different. So we're measuring outcomes. It's much like trying to, so what we're essentially trying to do is coach like athletes on the basis of the gold medals that they get. I mean, that's after the event. They're just, they're just rewards. What we need to do is, is, is coach and train on personal bests like we do athletes. And we would never attempt to coach an athlete any other way. We, we measure their speeds, you know, we measure the weights that they lift, we measure their body strength, we measure all those things. Well, we've got all those sort of measures for a sale as well, in terms of if it's progressing, there's those measures that we can make, but we don't do it. You know, we, we measure it after the event when the horse has bolted. And I've, I've always been somewhat bemused by our compensation processes that are just not fit for purpose. In fact, they're lazy. And they, when I suggest to sales leaders, I frequently do, and I say, look, your, your, your compensation plan's broken. If if you want to come up with something that really, but by the way, that's the other thing. Instead of incenting people, reward them. Don't incent behavior because that's what creates the dysfunction. You're 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 motivating people to behave in a certain kind of way, and, and we know that way doesn't work. Instead, we're better off rewarding them after the event for having behaved appropriately. Yeah. You know, we need to turn and the whole thing delivering the outcome. And, yes, this, and delivering this, the, the outcome. problem is people pay for outcomes. They don't part buy your product or your service until we start getting sellers and leadership and management to understand it's not about you. It's not about your company. It's not about you hitting quota. It's about them achieving the outcomes and creating the better future for themselves that they yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, what they want is the cure, not the medicine. Yeah. And 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 so what we ought to be doing then is focusing on helping them achieve outcomes. Now that might mean that we don't actually sell something, so be it. But but that's what the buyer wants. That's the outcome. That's the result. And that's where we can be of value. We need to think beyond. But the minute we think in terms of our own needs, the whole selling process is corrupted. What we agreed in the seller code was to put the buyer first, literally put them first ahead of yourself. And I think that's the first shift that has to happen in our consciousness in terms of how we go about our trade. Okay. I 100% agree with you, but I'm going to play devil's advocate now. We're in the business of making money. That's our job. We've got to serve our shareholders and deliver the highest return possible for this quarter, because if we don't, heads roll. So that's my priority. How am I going to behave ethically in an environment like that? We do that when we realize instead of managing for the result, we need to manage the inputs that create the result. Okay. So what we're saying is the outcome we want is if we end up with happy buyers, 
they're going to buy from us. They're going to be satisfied, right? So why why don't we why don't we do that? We kind of know that with human relations. You know, when we build relationships, we sort of know we kind of need to invest in growing the relationship and creating that sort of bonding and spirit, and then we all want to be together. If we just want to cut to the chase. That's 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 a short return game. We're not we're not going to get anywhere with that, right? And I, there's so many metaphors that we could use here, but I think the, the 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 challenge is, and again, by the way, there's plenty of science around this. Adam Grant wrote a book, Give and Take, and he quotes he quotes the science that givers end up becoming more successful than takers. It's true that things what goes around eventually comes around. Well, if we behave in that way, we behave in an honourable way, and and we we put our buyers first. They just buy from us. I, I mean, I've and I, I can cite so many examples with the people I've worked with and myself over and over again. There was no there was no arm twisting. There was no there was no nothing. You know that that we arrived at where we were going to arrive. Now here's the other thing. Given the current model, one of the challenges is I mean. Depending on your on, on on which statistics you look at, sales people win about twenty, say thirty percent, maybe even forty percent of their sales. Eighty percent of salespeople spend most of their time failing. I mean, what other profession has got that kind of track record? Okay, so demonstrably, it doesn't work. This whole pressure to go out there and sell, 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 it's analogous to the first world tactics of climbing out of the trenches, charging into the the fire of the Fire enemy. Yeah, exactly. Instead of, and it's it's a fairly useful metaphor, you know, you've got marketing and heavy artillery yeah. sort of lobbing stuff over and say, okay, we've softened them up for you. Off you go, guys. And the poor old rep comes out of the trench and gets annihilated. Okay. So I think we I think we need to be somewhat more pragmatic. The interesting thing is that we intuitively know that. I mean, all of us are buyers. Everyone that sells is a buyer. And and most of us wouldn't want to be sold to the way that we sell to other people. I mean, we, we don't like it ourselves. It does baffle me that there is so little self-awareness when sellers show up and they vomit up features and functions. They try and close. They're using manipulative technique. And if they put themselves for a moment in the shoes of the buyer, their flesh would crawl. So how is it that that can continue to be propagated? It, it baffles me. It's not particularly complicated. Just to give you a couple of examples of people I've worked with, and this is sort of pretty competitive industries, for example, you know, security systems, okay, which is heavily price-driven and all the rest of it. So one of the guys I work with, he 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 rocks up to a company or whatever else, and they want to have they put in security systems. Okay, what do you want a security system for? Oh, I want to stop people knocking off the tools and all that sort of stuff. Okay, so what does feeling safe feel like to you? And this and and this person was all set to go on a tour around the building because he thought that's what you know Philip would want to do, but he didn't. He just sat down and had a conversation with him. And the guys turned around and said, and "This is happening repetitively. You know, this this happens to Philip day by day. This is his life." And he said, no one's ever had a conversation with us like this. He said, well, go and have a bit of a look around and tell us what you think we need and and, and we'll get it done. <laughs> and off he goes. They don't ask for a quote, nothing. Whereas before, they always started with a quote. And another example is, is a commercial photographer where typically people ring up and said, we need some headshots of our executive team. How much for 10 headshots? 
and then but that used to be you send a quote, follow up, nothing ever happens, right? So now we ask the question, what do you want the headshots for? Well, our executive team, what are you going to do with them? Put them on our website. What do you want people to think when they see them? Yeah. And, of course, it's the admin person that asked the question. She says, oh, I don't know. Well, who would know? Oh, so-and-so. Well, can I speak to him then? Yeah. And before you know it, he's got an invitation to go out there and same thing, take the headshots, send us your invoice. So I think it's a case of they don't know how to buy this stuff. They don't know how to buy a security system. They don't know how to buy photos. And so they they presume that the the... the you know, they just presume the buyer knows, and so I'll just give him a price. But they don't. They want help to buy. This is where we need to define what selling is. Selling is the facilitation of buying well. Yes. The, the job is to help your buyer make good decisions well and make the right decision for themselves, for now and the future. And it needs to deliver the outcome that they intended. Uh, if it does all of those things, you end up with no resistance at all. I, I, I've been teaching pain discovery for the last 20 years. And over the last year, I've had a massive shift in my thinking. Um, because as I've started to understand the neuroscience more, what I've realized is that by using pain discovery, I leave the buyer very often with that association of that pain and me together. What I need to do, if I'm going to tap into the brain and create the minimum amount of resistance and turn their brain into my buying ally, is I need to find ways to enlist their brain. And I need to eliminate risk. Any form of risk creates uncertainty in the buyer's brain, and that creates the worst case scenario is a default setting. So I want to eliminate that. If I can eliminate that, then I'm not a threat. What's been really interesting is over the last few months, I've stopped using pain in my discovery completely. And people are volunteering. For my cold inbound, the close rate is nearly 40%. For my warm and hot inbound, it's north of 85% for warm, and for hot, it's 100%. Now, that means very little prospecting is required on my part, which means that I have time to do the important stuff, the 1,000 and 10,000 pound an hour activities, instead of faffing around spending it on 10 pound and 100 pound an hour activities. Absolutely. So what, one, of the, one, of the, one of the questions I like to ask people is, you know, People buy what they value. They don't buy what they need. They buy what they value. That's what they buy. And, and and one of the questions I ask is, so when's the best time to find out what people value? Is it when they're complete, contemplating going to the store? Is it when they walk into the store? Is it as they walk around the store? Or is it when they come out of the store? When do you think would be the best time to ask them what they value? And most people don't get it right. But the best time is when they walk out the store, because then you turn around and say, what made you buy that? And that description is their perception of value. And so what our job as salespeople is to understand how do they want to feel when they walk out the store? That's the conversation we need to have with them. What So rather than talking about pain, it's a conversation about, well, what does the absence of pain feel like? Now, the interesting thing is that's a really easy conversation to have. When you, when you have a conversation about needs, 
the buyer's interpretation is you're just asking me this stuff because you just want to figure out what you can sell me. It, it doesn't matter how you frame it. That's what it's going to come yeah. across like. And it's more like an interrogation, which it is, yeah. you know. I just want to understand. Why do you want to understand? I mean, which is the standard language of salespeople. But instead saying, you know, in a perfect world, five years down the track, where do you see yourself? And 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 then they're going to then often salespeople will say, well, that's sort of none of my business. You know, he called me up about this or that. And I said, well, no, you need to make it your business. You know, understand you're only a part of their world or whatever they want to achieve. What you want to know is what is their bigger vision? This, and by the way, that's for themselves. That's not for their business, right? It's yeah. for themselves. It has uh, to be personal and it has abs- to be personal. Absolutely, absolutely. And and I think the big flaw in, in selling is we we know that people, as we were discussing earlier, that only spend 5% of their time thinking and 95% of their time on autopilot. We can thank Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky for coming up with that. And that's how Kami won, won the, uh, the Nobel Prize in yeah. early this century. And, of course, that's upended our knowledge of, of psychology. I mean, it's been upended this century. And all the books about selling were written last century. And they presuppose that people were thinking with a rational brain. So it amuses me that... When sellers, sellers are planning or talking to, to buyers, they're talking to the bit that is engaged 5% of the time. The bit that buyers use 95% of the time isn't being engaged at all. Oh, and by the way, it's the same for sellers, of course, because they're not engaging. They're, 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 they're 95%. And as Mayor Angelou said, at the end of the day, they won't remember what you said. They won't remember what you uh, what you did, but they will remember how you made them feel. And that's the salesperson's job, is, as you said just before, Marcus, help them feel safe. And they'll uh, they'll just rely on you to help them solve their problem. You, you, t- you touched on something really important as well as that buyer safety element, which I'm a massive advocate of. And in fact, I've developed a, um, a profiling tool that allows me to understand the impact you have on buyer safety and the psychological dissonance that you're creating. It's uh, you know, really very insightful. And what is really important to understand here is that that focus on what matters most to the individual takes it out of the realm of feature function, order taking, peddling into a place where you move from being one of them to one of us. Because mm. our job in the sale is to create the conditions where intimacy, where vulnerability, where sharing of confidences is possible. That cannot happen if they see you as a threat. And Mm. anything that you do, particularly BANT-based questioning, is likely to trigger that response in the buyer's brain. And the channel that you sell to is the buyer's brain. It's not going to evolve in your lifetime or mine. We don't have that long. And the reality is that none of the audience listening to this will see the buyer's brain evolve in their lifetime that quickly without augmentation from technology. So until that becomes ubiquitous, you're going to have to deal with the buyer's brain architecture as it is, which is largely irrational, totally emotional, and very predictable. That's a really important point that we've still got the brain that our knuckle-dragging ancestors had. And <laughs> Our first priority is, is to survive. We tend to think it's to be happy. It's not. Survival comes first. It still is. And to all intents and purposes, a salesperson is somewhat analogous to a saber-toothed tiger, right? 
as far as our amygdala is concerned, our lizard brain. And that's that's the response that you're likely to get. So then we proceed to reinforce that almost with the words that come out of our mouths when we start talking about our company and our product, which is self-interest. We start talking about ourselves and we just head off downhill from there. I think that salespeople, for salespeople, they are trustworthy, most of them. The trouble is they don't act like it. And where they start from the default is they they tend to lose trust. It's interesting, you know, Timothy Devine, Alabama University, has come up with the trust default theory, which basically says that we evolved to trust. That that's how we that's where we start. And the reason that happened was that's how we created communities. We wouldn't have been able to evolve as a species if we didn't create communities. And to create communities, what had to happen was nomadic forefathers had to trust one another to create these communities, right? So that is our default. That's why we're so gullible. As people, human beings are, are, are gullible. The interesting thing is, of course, that that applies to just about everyone except salespeople. The, the default there is don't trust them. So we've kind of made that bed for ourselves and we're now lying in it. And we would never have been found out, but for the internet and buyers discovered this ubiquitous source of information. And that's that was that's a tectonic shift. And most sales practice just hasn't adapted. We're still getting along with an appalling rate of success, doing the same old, same old, and it just doesn't work. It's totally broken. In fact, it's not even repairable. We have to throw it away and 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 come up with a completely different. I'd suggest, Frank, it, a lot of that 20 to 30% of sales that we win are frankly accidents, not as a result of any judicious insight. Now, the interesting thing was, just to toot my own horn a little bit here, but I guess I can recall a lot of stories where I kind of intuitively got this idea of getting along with people, helping them, and you know, and a lot of most of my most of the big opportunities I won through my career, I were basically created. They weren't in response to the buyer wanting to buy something. It was going in and realizing this potential opportunity and helping them see it. And it wasn't until, you know, about 10 years ago when I got Kahneman's book where the lights started to go on for me and I'm reading it. I was like, oh, well, that's why that works. That's why that works. All of a sudden, I had a bit of a scientific basis for why. If you don't set up a real good impression when you first meet them, you're going downhill all the way until you actually fix that impression. Just don't keep on selling. You say, I haven't got off to a good start here, so you better back up and create a good start, if you know what I mean, right? And things like that 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 I now intuitively do and teach others to do, but most people don't do that. Okay, so let's explore values because i have a fundamental belief that all of this stems from having the right values in place and understanding how to voice your values and having prepared for moments that you know are going to come up where your values are going to be stretched so what are the underpinning values that we within the seller code advocate well i'll come back to that let me just an early experience i had a I was fortunate to go to a seminar uh, run by Stephen Covey, Stephen Covey Senior, here in Brisbane. It was back in the days when you could he could fit the audience in a ballroom. He subsequently went on to fill auditoriums, as you probably know. Yeah. And I think one of the things he said is, you know, we we come out of the womb trusting. We come out of the womb with integrity. We come out of the womb. We we don't need to be told what's right and wrong. We kind of know all of that, but as we grow, we start to distort it. 
And so getting to your question, I think it's just getting back to the fundamentals. It's like I ask people a question, do you keep your promises? And they say, oh, yeah, yeah, most of them. Oh, I say, so that's a no then. They don't, people don't think that way, you know. Um, it's it's like being, it's like reliability. Reliability is reliability. You, you, you kind of, we know the most agreeing trust equation, right? You know, reliability, credibility, intimacy. We, we know what reliability is. We know what telling the truth is. Telling the truth is, I mean, the truth is the truth. It's it's what you can remember, remember? So I think it's just a case of doing that. I think the unfortunate thing is that organizations, that, that some people feel under pressure to compromise that. And it's, I tell you, I'll give you, I'll tell you a story that, that or something that happened to me. I had a, I had a client here in, in Brisbane, BHP, big mining company, because it was a prime computer, and uh, they were looking for a new a new computer, and we had a new model coming, and gave us some standards that they wanted this thing to achieve. Right now, we hadn't actually built this thing yet; it was being designed. We had a look at the spec, and we said, "Yeah, the the, the machine will do this." It was it was a couple of million dollars worth of machine. We we went back to them and wrote and, and confirmed that yes, this will perform on the benchmark. You know, they ordered the machine; it got delivered. Just before they ordered the machine, I sort of oh, rang the guy up and I said, oh, John, the CIO, you'd be pleased to know we've actually run the benchmark on the physical machine. It actually it actually passed, okay? So that's great. They'd already ordered it. As a matter of fact, it was actually twice as good, the results they got. Anyway, they went ahead and ordered it, got delivered. Then not long after, he rang me up and said, oh, mate, this thing's not performing. I said, why is that? And he said, well, you said it would be twice as good as the benchmark. And I said, well, yeah, that was a throwaway line. I mean, we're all, we we committed to what we committed to, but then I said we tested it. And he said, yeah, but that's what I, I ran up the flagpole. That's how I got authorization. I said it would be twice as good. So long story short, I went back to the company and I said, we, we've got to give these guys another computer, another $2 million worth of machine for nothing. And I said, why? He said, was it in writing? I said, no. You know, no, and I, and I didn't guarantee it. I just told him, and he believed me. And to their credit, they gave him a machine. That's good leadership. And what well, was, I mean, what was good on that? them. But I, you, you know, he had reason to believe he shouldn't have gone up. He should have just taken my word for it like that. But it was a throwaway line. But still, he he believed it. The words that we use in sales are really important. Mm. When we deliver them, how we deliver them, our intent behind them. If I look at the seller code, it starts with, in all of my dealings with buyers, I will be buyer-centric. I'll prioritize their interests ahead of my own. And it's not about making a sale, and it's not about being altruistic, because in the long term, my best interests are their best interests. Acting with integrity, understanding their point of view, and listening deeply to what being said, understanding their drivers, the commercial, professional, personal, the political landscape, the context in which they operate, absolutely obsess about their outcome because that's what they're paying for. Treat their time with as if it's valuable. You know, if you're dealing with the CFO of a company that's 100 million, their time is worth $50,000 an hour. How dare you show up unprepared? asking housekeeping question, yeah? You need to advance them to the point where 50 grand investment is money well spent. That's well, what, the you, what you need to think about is 
you need to think about it being a value in every interaction. Most of us, before we call on a client or a prospect, are thinking in terms of what it is we need to find out. You know, we, we need to find out what the needs are. We need to find out the timetable, the decision maker. It's all this stuff. Fancy. We don't think about, well, why should they even see me? What What is it? What is the value to them? That's the first place that sellers need to think about. I say to people, don't even call on them unless you, you, there's a really good reason. that You want to walk out of the door and they're going to say, I'm really glad that Marcus called today. You know, every time I speak to Marcus, I learn something. That's kind of... Absolutely. I'm going to caveat this. Every touch and every question must advance your buyer in one way or another. Either help them understand the cause of their problem, help them understand the options available to them, including your competition, or help them advance towards solving their problem and creating the better future. If any of your questions fail to accomplish that, you have no business asking that question. If you want to gather the BANT information or the medic information that you need in order to qualify internally, fine and dandy, but ask the question so it brings value to the customer. Advance them, every single touch, because there's something called the pratfall effect, which is where there is an association with the last emotion that you felt towards that person. So if I've left you with a vision of a better future, as opposed to a bunch of technical shit on your PowerPoint or a bunch of um, a a feeling that you are trying to dip your hand in my pocket to take my money, there's a very different response. So the next time I call, I want you to look forward to picking up the phone. I ask my clients now, when I phone and you see my number come up, what's the emotion, what's the feeling that goes through you? And most of them will say, well, excitement, because I know I'm going to learn something. Many of them also say a certain amount of trepidation because they know that it's probably going to be uncomfortable. But they all know that when I call, there is a bloody good reason. And their time will never be wasted. Now, how many salespeople can say that of every one of their customers? Uh, Very few. But the other issue, Marcus, is the scales aren't even. Salespeople are not even starting in a neutral position. They're starting from a position of being distrusted from the get-go. So even if they walk up and behave in an appropriate manner, that's insufficient. Because the chances are that the buyer's perceiving that you're go- you're going to be full of full self-interest. So one of the challenges for sellers is to disabuse buyers of that from the get-go, you know, and go through and learn how to engage. I call it the halo effect, sort of create that really good impression. And you're not doing it being smarmy. As you turned around, you said, you know, that there is a level of trepidation perhaps when you call. And that's good because... If you're challenging or helping the buyer think, that's a value to the buyer. But you can't just, just do that from the get-go. But you need to sort of make them aware and broadcast that, you know, I'm, look, I'm not here to pee in your pocket and I'm not here to satisfy my ends. And in the interest of both of us, I want to find out real quick whether I might be a value to you so you know whether it's worth your time spending any time with me, so, to paraphrase. Well, and, but this this starts with, some fundamentals. The first thing is we have to prepare, which means we need to do our research, we need to plan, we need to practice, and then we need some, probably need some coaching. So it's not just us. Salespeople who um, play the game of being the individual contributor without involving other people, they get so far, 
But your job as a seller is to enlist and get discretionary effort from people within your own organization, within your partners, within your customers. It's so much easier to do that if instead of trying to convince, coerce, bully, close, you're enlisting them. And this requires you to take a very different perspective. You can't really do that in the time pressured pressure cooker of trying to get someone to be your customer from cold this quarter. Certainly with something that is strategic, career limiting, has an impact for a lasting period on the company or the career of the individual who's making the decision. If you allow your greed, your short-term selfish self-interest to take over, then there's no way that they're going to buy and you'll end up with the deal stalling. Half of most people's pipeline is lost because they faff around trying to sell when what people really need is a bloody good listening to. They really need to be understood. They need to understand, uh, sellers need to understand what this other person really cares about, what matters most to them and why it matters to them. You're not going to get that if you're just pitching. I have a fundamental view that you don't need to turn up with this really heavy agenda. I think what you need to do is turn up with a really clear, open mind to understand what it is they really want. Because the problem that they bring you is inevitably going to be either nirvana or a bunch of symptoms. It's never you know, going I, to be the real outcome that they want. I agree. I, I, I guess I tend to have some disagreements with some of my fellow coaches. Uh, mm. my, my view is that along with self-awareness, one of the requirements for any salesperson is curiosity. Mm. And to go in there with have no stake in the conversation. And I think the problem is that salespeople are going in there with, with a view to find something. And that immediately colors their conversation. And when they listen, they're listening for something. They're listening for cues, right? So their listening is loaded. And the old amygdala, the old lizard brain, sort of picks up on that straight away, even if the buyer isn't particularly conscious of it, that this elephant, or as, to use a metaphor, is just this person's a salesperson. They just want to get your hand in your pocket, right? That, that's the sense. And so what we need to do then is I talk about, and the other thing is salespeople typically go in with this sort of whole list of questions. And I sort of say, well, do you go along to your, meet with your friends and have an agenda and, and work through a list? You don't, do you? And how do the conversations with your friends usually go? Well, you enjoy them, don't you? There's sort of there's a level of engagement going on there. Well, it's the same with buyers, you know, engage with buyers. I've got some interesting examples for some of the people I've coached where they've been called in some examples. My boss was talking to me about their salesperson saying, oh, we were called in to do the presentation and they took me along. He took me along and he didn't present. He just started asking him a whole lot of questions. And it was great. They were getting on famously and we we, we walked out of there and he said, I don't even know what I was there for. And I said, well, that was really good. You just saw what he was, what did you think of the outcome? I said, it was fantastic. And it had a real profound effect on her as, as his manager to, to see this guy in action. Now he regularly goes into, these are government departments, right? The process of calling tenders, room full of people, want a presentation, they get nothing. Not a yeah. slide, nothing. He just starts having a conversation with them and ask them about themselves and off they go. 
Well, one of my favorite examples of somebody who is masterful at this is Simon Byrne, his um, fellow countryman of yours. And he runs a business called Models Method. And they sold six battleships to the American Department of Defense in 14 minutes because they'd done their research and they understood that what the, the admirals wanted was battle-ready battleships. And so they'd done their research, they built their hypothesis, and they built a framework to help the buyer to understand the problem that they were really trying to fix. Now, I think one of the major missing factors in most sales organizations is time for reflection and deep thought as your customer. Empathy is understanding, but it goes beyond that. It's feeling what the other person feels. It's seeing what they see. It's hearing what they hear and understanding to their satisfaction. And I think one of the problems is that we teach active listening and it becomes a technique. And this is one of the things that I have a real bugbear with, with so many organizations that are using playbooks, because the playbook becomes dogma. And I've seen so many playbooks that institutionalize the triggering of contempt and disgust in the buyer's brain. Because when you put the buyer under pressure at the end of the quarter, the insular responds. And the insular is where disgust and contempt reside. I mean, why would we institutionalize that in our selling methodologies? But we do. Because we have this time pressure that is false, that, that you know is generated largely in private companies by quarterly reporting and focusing on the wrong end of the problem, which is how do we get our numbers up instead of how do we deliver the outcome that the customer wants and that they paid us for? Because if we do that, then we've got happy customers and we don't then suffer from the churn problem. Yeah, 15% churn rate means I have to replace half my customers every three years. It's insane. So we, we, we have to spend time in deep reflection and thought. We have to spend time in deep listening. We have to really develop powerful, provocative questions that advance the buyer's understanding. And we have to put all of that into context in which the buyer operates. Because it's all well and good me selling software, but if I'm trying to sell it using my 1980s training, odds are I'm going to be selling out of context. I was fortunate that I I went through, you know, I've, I've sold completely different things, I've transitioned industries. And one of the things that, you know, I often have when I go coaching is that, oh, well, that won't, won't work here. We're different. You know, our mm. industry's different. And I guess I say, well, I'm here to tell you it's different. Look, I, I like when I got the job at Prime Computer, having having knocked on the doors of 15 IT companies, none of which wanted to hire me, they hired me. The HR manager, when when he director, when he saw me, I said, well, I'd like to wish you well, Pat, but I, I don't think you're going to succeed here. And I, and, and I said, well, why is that? And he said, well, you know, we've done a lot of research on what makes a successful IT salesperson, you know, and he went through the thing, computer degree, blah, 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 blah. okay, I didn't have any of that. <laughs> and I said, well, well, how many how many ex-tractor salesmen did you have in your sample? And he said, well, <laughs> well none. <laughs> anyway, long story short, I went on to achieve Target in my first year with new name, four new name accounts. These are these are large systems, right, $300,000, $400,000 each, with no, no established patch. They weren't going to give me one. No customers, no nothing, all new name. Yeah. And I didn't know anything about computers. 
But what I could do is I could have conversations. I did have some general nous, as we call it, in terms of having a conversation, and they just felt safe with me. That was well, it. You didn't have an agenda, and you weren't trying to push something because you didn't no. know any better. And you were and, and so wonderful. One of the things I, you know, I have to sort of unlearn most salespeople is forget about all the crud that you know about your business and your product and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it may be useful to inform the odd question, but really, what you want to know is in the buyer's head, and even they don't know it's there. That's the challenge. The, it's the purpose of product knowledge. And market knowledge and company knowledge is to help you formulate powerful questions to help advance the buyer. Yeah. Nothing else. Yeah. If you use product or market knowledge to try and sell, odds are you're just going to create cost and resistance in the buyer's mind. If, on the other hand, you use your knowledge to formulate questions that help the buyer see the better future is within their grasp, that's a very different setup. So here's a challenge for you change of pace. Here's part of the problem, I think. We have this verb sell and selling. And it, it implicit in that is you doing something to buyers as opposed to it's, it doesn't connote what we're talking about. And I think one of the challenges we've got is our we have such a firm paradigm of what sales means. And sales means pitching, manipulating, proactively, overcoming objections, doing all this stuff. It's kind of hard to redefine it. Well, the, part of the problem is that the word has been bastardized because actually, if you look at the etymology of it, sales means service. Yes. And this is where sales has gone dere gotten derailed because sales is a service profession. We serve the interests of others first and thereby get our own interests met afterwards. But the problem is that we've been turned into a factory. Our job is to churn through large numbers of suspects that marketing have generated in order to interrupt a lot of people in the vague hope that some of them are going to be in the market to buy our shit now. There's a much easier, far more profitable way of doing business, which is to focus on people and the human being and what they care about and identify people who are likely to be in the market to buy your stuff at some point and engage with them over time in an unpressured way, why should your buyer pay the price for your lack of prospecting nine months ago? Because you're in a hurry to make a deal happen. That's why I'm suggesting there needs to be a substantial shift in paradigm. I think what we're doing typically with sales training, coaching, and most things is we're putting lipstick on a pig, right? I think- They don't I use think... it. That's the thing. How many people get trained and then go back and revert back to what they did before immediately? Well, even if they get trained, they're getting trained in the wrong stuff, a lot of yeah. them. Present company accepted, maybe, but <laughs> a lot of that traditional model is just, it, 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 yeah, and I guess this is what exercises my mind is how do we create, how do we knock it off its axes? We're in this mode of complacency where we're just really happy with 40%, 20% achievement of target. I mean, what other industry can survive with that level of fundamental dysfunction? If you were in health and safety or you were in finance and you failed 60% of the time, I bet you'd be in jail. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what do we do in sales? We say, oh, let's go and look for some more prospects to screw up. Look for more leads. Fancy a plumber, you know, every time, you know, 50% of the houses he leaves, the pipes are all still leaking. What are you going to do to fix that? Going to find more customers. We'd laugh, wouldn't we? We'd be in Congress. So we don't have this 
black box thinking in terms of, well, there's a problem here. We should go back and identify what the problem is and fix it and get better at doing it. We don't have that kind of mentality in the sales model. We're behaving in a dysfunctional way because of the way we've created these targets. And it's a classic example of, I wish Kahneman would just sort of sit down and do a bit of an exercise on the sales profession in terms of the cognitive biases. I mean, there's over 100 of them, and, and I've gone through them all, and there's about 50 of them you could sort of say, absolutely, most salespeople, most people suffer from them, you know? So anyway. Let's just finish on this concept of clean selling. Talk to me about that. That was the idea getting to what we were talking about in terms of redefining selling. And and I, I, I've been wrestling with the term, and then all of a sudden, just a few weeks ago, the expression clean selling popped into mind. And and when people say, what does that mean? I sort of ask, well, what do you think it means? And most people get it right. It's, it's Clean selling is actually the antithesis of what you think selling is. Because most people think that selling is kind of, if not dirty, we're not least a bit tainted. It's manipulative, it's pushy, it's salesy. It's not natural, it's not authentic, it's, you know, it's less than ethical. And there's variations in there. But clean selling is like, well, it's clean. Mm-hmm. Okay. Doesn't bring with it any baggage. Um, so as a listener, I want you to think about this. If Uh, A seller turns up and at no point brings their agenda to try and convince you to buy, but they listen. They listen to what's really going on, what matters, what really matters most to you, the context in which you're operating. Isn't it more likely that you're going to be receptive when you are in the market to buy, that that person will be the person you will actively seek out? We know yeah. from the research that only 17% of the buying cycle, the buying journey, is spent in front of salespeople. And that's spread out across the entire buying journey, across all the vendors. Well, Absolutely. you've got an opportunity in the passive looking phase to have a zero competition. So when they move from passive to active looking, you've already got a dozen points of contact who are championing you and want you to win. Everyone else is starting from a position where they're phoning up the decision maker, trying to convince them to part with money this quarter. There's more to it than that, because those people know other people. And and so what, what, what can happen is that they're talking to a friend or a colleague about something and they say, oh, I met a guy, I met a guy, uh, Marcus, somebody or other, the other day, he does, he's a really good guy, you should meet. And you get, you get a, refer, a re- referral from that way, because you impress them and they talk about you. So it's a gift that keeps on giving. Um, And and also referrals are so much more valuable than cold. Cold closes at 3%. Referrals close at nearly 17%. But average order value of a referred piece of business is two and a half times that of a cold. Repeat order on average three times more frequently and they refer four times as often. So, So all that referral does is it overcomes that barrier I spoke about originally, where the, when you walk up, you're you're going to be distrusted. That's what the you know the buyers made So it eliminates that particular thing, right? Yeah. So what's that? That gives you another fifteen percent chance of winning, and it's those sorts of things that we're talking about eliminating. We'll get rid of that one, and that's what referrals do. Absolutely. And I don't think we intellectualize enough. We say, "Oh, referrals are good," but we don't sort of think, "Well, why are referrals good?" Referrals and how are we systematize them. And how can we improve the quality of the referrals? And how can we increase the volume of the right type? 
the beauty is you can systematize all of these things and you can measure everything if you bother to put the thinking. Yeah, yeah, but, uh, but I mean, the thing is about the referral is that the reason you got in the door with the referral is because he thinks you're not a dick. Yeah. Where, where if you didn't have the referral, so how could, what are the other things you can do that are analogous to that? Don't be a dick, right? And, and, uh, and absolutely, that's- the Jimmy Carr rule, don't break that. If you meet three dicks <laughs> by 12 o'clock, you're the dick. Uh, Pat. <laughs> This has been really, really good. Tell me this. How can people get hold of you? The sales natural or one word.com is my website. They can see me there. Then in LinkedIn, yeah, it's the value-based seller or, <laughs> or the sales natural again, I guess. Yeah, that would probably and be your best. email. Patrick at the sales natural or one word.com. And when's your book coming out? No pressure. <laughs> I'd like to. I'd like to get see if I can get it out this year. I put a bit of effort in over Christmas too. Lovely. Yeah, it's it's substantially written. It's just how do I start it was the the, the challenge. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, so for anyone who's interested in the topic of selling ethically, we have a group called the Seller Code on LinkedIn. The Seller Code is up there. You can see what we're proposing. We'd love to be challenged. Tell us why this stuff won't work in the real world. Prove us wrong, because I dare you to implement the seller code in your day-to-day selling and see the difference. On the 31st of January, we um, have a couple of sessions. In the morning, we're doing a session around how trust-based selling has impacted the performance of individual reps. And in the afternoon, we've got Charlie Green coming in, and Charlie is the author of uh, Trust-Based Selling, the trusted advisor and the originator of the trust equation. He's been involved for 40 years in helping build really trusted brands and trusted relationships with people. So we're talking about trust through the lens of ethics and values, because at the end of the day, values can become a filter for making good decisions well and being able to delegate decision-making down the chain of command to the people who are closest to the problem, and thereby freeing up management and leadership resources to spend their time on strategic and high-value behavior. So if any of you are interested, please join the Seller Code group, get involved in the discussions, share your stories, and please get in touch with me or with Pat, with Lahat uh, Tisvi, and uh, who else are we? involved with on the John group. Uh, John Smybert, who is the uh, co-author of The Wentworth Prospect, which again, if you haven't read it, read The Wentworth Prospect. Bloody awesome book. The other book I have to recommend is Mary Gentile's Giving Voice to Values. I cannot stress how important that is. Another book is How Do You Measure Your Life by Clay Christensen. These are really important, reflective books that are going to cause you to think differently about your role as a seller, as a business person, and as a human being. Because you can't separate you, the human being, from you and your role functions, seller, father, mother, daughter, sister, brother, golfer, pilot. These are all roles, but you are always in them. And understanding, increasing your level of self-awareness is not just about understanding you, but it's about understanding the effect you have on others. So 
Without any further ado, I'm going to uh, sign off. If you've enjoyed this, please like, comment, and share. And I'm taking on three or four new private coaching clients. If you are interested, then please get in touch. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling.